take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, we've been studying this summer uh, Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, the first one. And actually, it's, it's probably the first letter that Paul ever wrote that we have uh, for us uh, preserved in the, in the Scriptures. Um, but while it's the first letter that he probably wrote chronologically, it's not the first letter that's listed in the New Testament. The letters of Paul aren't arranged chronologically by when he wrote them. So you won't see them at the beginning of his letters. You'll find it right after Colossians and, go figure, right before Second Thessalonians. Um, and if you, if you don't have a Bible with you, then you're welcome to take the one that's on the rack in front of you, and you can find 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 on page 1170 of that, of that Bible. Now, just for a little bit of context, it would be helpful actually to go back and look at the first verse of chapter 4, um, because this is where Paul pivots. In the first three chapters, he's been talking about um, his ministry, about how he desires to see the Thessalonians, explaining to them again the, uh, the importance and the wonder of the gospel. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, he, he pivots, and he says, finally, brothers, finally not because the letter is, is, is over, but finally because he's now getting to a different point, we instructed you how to live in order to please God as, in fact, you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. So he's sort of saying, okay, now I'm going to give you instructions. I'm, you've been doing some of these things, but I'm going to urge you to do it even more. And last week, what Pastor Kozlowski did was he looked at verses 3 through 8 and showed us how, how, the, how, how Paul was giving us instructions about how we're to live with sexual integrity, how we're to live as sexual beings in a way that, that pleases God and actually maximizes our own pleasure and joy in the, in the process. Then, verses 9 to 12, he goes on and he gives further instructions. That's what we're going to read now. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 to 12. Listen as I read. Paul says, Now about brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is God's Word. Now, being a child can be confusing. Children, you know this? It can be really confusing to be a child sometimes because parents can be really confusing. Right? Parents can say things that, that almost exactly at the same time just sound completely contradictory and, and, and can leave a child saying, okay, what exactly, do you, what exactly do you want me to do? For example, parents, this may never happen to you, but, but but in the very same moment, to the very same child, you can find yourself one moment looking at them and saying something like this, saying, you know, we exist as part of a family, right? It's not just about you. Right? There's, there's other people here. I, I want you to stop thinking about yourself all the time and start considering other people around you. Well, that's good, right? I mean, that's solid. That's, that's helpful kind of advice. But then the very next instant, kids, parents can look at you probably after you tried to implement this desire to be involved in the lives of other people. They can look at you the very next instant and say something like, does that concern you? Is that your business? Would you please just focus on what you need to do and not worry about other people? 
Is it any wonder that kids are confused? And yet, I bring that up because that, that isn't a way how you might feel when you read what Paul just, just wrote here because, because in verses 9 to 10, we seem to see Paul making the case for, for, for radical community. Guys, I want you to love each other. I want you to excel in brotherly love. Be concerned with other people around you. Be mutually dependent upon one another. And then in the very next verse, he turns around and he says, I want you to mind your own business and work hard so that you're dependent on no one. What's he doing? What, 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 what's he talking about here? Is, what, what does he want? Mutual dependence and love? Right? Or independence and hard work that takes care of yourself? Which one? Well, spoiler alert, he wants both because he wouldn't be saying both of them if he didn't want both. But how? How does that happen? I mean, and this is, I mean, this is important to understand because, because Christians talk about both things all the time. But how do they come together? That's what I want to look at. Because, because in this we see, we see the need for dependence and love, and we see the need for independence and work. And then finally we see what brings them together. The need for dependence, the need for independence, and then what finally brings them together. Now, first, again, first, the need for dependence. Read again verses 9 to 10. Now, about your brotherly love, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, yet we urge you, brothers, to do so more and more. Right, that's Paul's instruction. Now, this is fairly straightforward. Right? What's he urging them to do? Love each other. And what kind of love is he talking about? Right? Brotherly love, he says. Now, because we live in the, the larger Philadelphia metro region, this is not a word that's unfamiliar with us, to us. Right? This, is the, this is the word for, for brotherly love, Philadelphia. And, and, and this is the kind of love. I mean, and there's different words that, that the Bible uses, different Greek words for love. But among those, brotherly love is not, it's not the romantic love between a husband and wife. Nor is it sort of the, the, the predetermined natural love that, a, that a, a mother has for her child, something like that. No, brotherly love is the kind of love, a friendship love, a, a close bond that's, that's formed, as close as brothers, that's formed around, around some, some shared interest, some task, some, some mutual affinity. Now, outside of the Bible, in other Greek writing, it's a word that's used to, to refer to, to the affection that is held between people who are part of the same group, the in-group, their clique, you know, their crew. That's, that's the, it's, it's, it's the love that you have for those in your, in your, in your crew. Now, in the Bible, the, the word is almost exclusively used of Christians. So when it's encouraging you to have Philadelphia, to have brotherly love, it's, talking about, it's saying, love your fellow followers of Jesus. Love other Christians. Now, the response to that initially might be by some say, well, that sounds awfully exclusive. What, you're just supposed to love the Christians? But in its context, think about this. Think about how, how radically inclusive a statement like that actually would be. That you were to love as brothers everyone who was within the, within, within the church. In other words, defining, defining brotherhood in this way would completely contradict the social expectations of the time as to who would be in your crew. Right? Because the cultural expectation of the time was that, was that would be that your friends— your friends would be defined by your social status, by your class, by the schools you went to, or, or it would be defined by your, your race, by the color of your skin, by, 
by where you came from. But then along comes the, along comes the Christian church and says that God defines brotherly love differently. Differently from the way that, that it was typically, typically used. Because, because here, Christianity is saying that your friends aren't determined by your social status, not determined by your class, not determined by your, your race. The church was a place of all social classes, all ethnic backgrounds. And that was very, very different. Christianity is distinctive because it, up, it upends the social convention of, of, of who we love. It tears down the barriers between, between people with a message of reconciliation. In other places, Paul uses the, the language of adoption to, as a metaphor to refer to what happens to us when we become children of God. And that's a, that's, a, that's a good metaphor. When we become a follower of Jesus, we are adopted into his family. And we have a new heavenly father. And as a result, we have new siblings. Siblings that we are to love as brothers. Now, this isn't to say that the church always does a very good job of doing what Paul is urging it to do. The church in Thessalonica was obviously doing a pretty good job. Paul says that they're doing it particularly well. They're caring for each other locally. They're caring for all the churches in the region of Macedonia. He says, good job, but I want you to do more of it. So they were doing it well. But churches often don't. The church at large often doesn't. They often fail. But the fact that the church often fails to love each other in this kind of way does not mean that the message of Christianity is wrong. It just means that the church is failing to live up to its message and needs to be called to account. And when this happens, when this kind of love for people who are, who are from all different kinds of backgrounds, who are, who are very, very different in many respects, when this kind of love happens, it's distinctive. I was reading uh, uh, write, uh, some writing of a, of a pastor's wife, and, and they, they started, one Thanksgiving, they had 27 people over for Thanksgiving. Um, and they're, you know, they're modest house, a pastor's wife, and modest house, and, and they had 27 people over for Thanksgiving. And, they, and to do that, they had to sort of reconfigure their living room and dining room and kind of turn it into one big giant room with all these tables. And, and they liked it so much, they had such a good time that they just decided, let's just leave the house this way. Let's just leave it sort of in hospitality-ready mode. And so every, every Sunday after church, they do it throughout the week, but every Sunday after church, they have this big, giant meal. And one of the guys who comes occasionally to this big, giant meal is named Zion. And, and Zion, he doesn't come every week. And the reason he doesn't come every week is because, because he's serving the last two years of, of a 10-year prison term. And under the arrangements of, of this particular stage of his sentence, he's only allowed out of the prison with supervision for five hours every other week. So he'll come, to, he'll come to the church service, and then he'll come over for dinner afterward. And one Sunday, as they were sort of passing the potatoes, he, he locked eyes with his, with his hostess. Now, this wasn't the first time he was there, but, 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 but their eyes locked, and she noticed that there were tears in his eyes. And she said, Zion, what's, what's wrong? What's the matter? And this is what he says. He says, I've never been in a home before. Never been in a home. Not like this with love, with Christ, with brothers and sisters, and I belong here. Now, it's not true, actually, that he'd never been in a home before, but what he's saying is he'd never experienced this before. When he, he, he had a seat at the table, he belonged. Pastor's wife and a convicted convict, and everything in between, that's the kind of brotherly love 
that Paul is, is talking about here. That's the need that we have, one for another, or mutual dependence. We need it. That's point number one. Now, point number two, the need for independence. Read verses 11 and 12 again. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, and to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. All right, so first, what's he saying? Just, just on the face of it, what's he saying? Well, at the very least, before we tr- get into trying to reconcile one with the other, at the very least, what he's saying is, as far as you're able, you should work. Right? You, you should work to take care of your own needs, to provide, to provide for yourself, to provide for your basic needs so that you aren't depending upon someone else to provide those needs for you. Now, there's a, 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 a caveat here. Paul's, Paul's, not, Paul's not saying that he's not talking about being unemployed, as in wanting to work but not being able to find it. And he's not talking about being physically unable to work and needing to depend on others to take care of you. He's not talking about those things. What Paul is combating here is idleness. Someone being able to work, someone having the opportunity to work, and yet choosing not to work. And you know this because Paul talks about this other places in his letter to the Thessalonians. In fact, if you look at the, towards the end of of this first letter to the Thessalonians, in chapter 5, verse 14, in his final instructions to them, he says, we urge you, brothers, warn those who are idle. Warn them. Now, and then in 2 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians um, chapter 3, verse 11, he says, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 11, he says, we hear that some among you are idle. They're not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the bread that they eat. In other words, the troublemakers need to get a job. They need to start doing something productive. They need to not be idle. That's what Paul is is talking about here. That's what he's trying to combat. Now, why? Why why is he talking about this? Why is he he bringing this up now? Well, most most scholars kind of point to two possible reasons as to why, contextually, Paul is, is talking about this to the Thessalonians. First, as we keep on reading next week in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we'll see that there, there was a theological misunderstanding that was going on in the church, right? a, a, a theology that needed to be corrected and that was leading to some bad, bad practice. Right, we'll see this next week, but at least some people in the church had obviously taken the teaching of, of Jesus. Jesus is teaching that he's going to come back and that people ought to be ready, that they ought to be expecting it. They had taken that teaching... Of, of waiting for his return a little bit too literally. And so what they were doing is they were just basically sitting around sipping a cool beverage looking at the sky. I wonder, I wonder when he's going to be back. And, and what, and what, now, whether that was just an excuse to get out of doing work or actually really a sincere just misunderstanding of what Jesus said, it doesn't really matter because Paul's instruction is it would be exactly the same. Saying, get up, take the umbrella out of your glass, and get to work. And the reason why that is is because Jesus did, in fact, tell us that we should be watching for his return, but he told us that we should be preparing for it. In other words, in the meantime, as we're waiting, it's an active waiting. We are readying ourselves, and we're readying ourselves by doing the things that he commanded us to do in the meantime. 
So some people think that that's, that's the, the contextual reason why Paul is emphasizing it here. Now, other scholars would, would say, no, what Paul's really talking about here, what he's really taking on is the Roman system of patronage. Now, we don't, we don't really have a close approximation of, of this today, but, but in the prevailing Greco-Roman culture of the time, in which Thessalonica found itself you know, right in the middle of, right, what would happen is you'd have, this, you'd have a wealthy person, the patron, who would, who would give financial support, would give protection and, and financial care to a, a, group of other, a group of other people who would, be, who would be the clients, people of lesser standing. And, and basically, like, he would take care of all their needs. And the only thing that they would have to do in return is support, whenever it was needed, the interests and the cares of the, of the patron. And it took, it took several different forms. Now, one of the, one of the, one of the forms and, and, a word, and the way in which, if we hear the word patron in our society today, a way in which it is kind of used in that way it, when it, would be when it comes to the arts. You have a patron of the arts. So in many cases, you'd have a wealthy person who would, who would provide patronage to people uh, who are skilled in, in music or in art of, of some kind, painting or sculpting. And they would take care of all of, their, all of their needs, all of their financial needs, and in return, they would provide them with with works of music and works of art, right? Now, that actually, that's actually not really much more, that's just the way they did the, they just did the business of arts. It's just an economic arrangement. That's, there's actually not, not much to sort of criticize there. We just do it in a slightly different form, but that was really just the way that this, the system worked. What Paul was actually really would have been concerned about was the way that it worked when it came to social and, and political issues, because this is where Paul would have the greater problem. A patron would oftentimes collect people and, and take care of them, and, and these people would be particularly valuable if they were Roman citizens. And he would collect them, and he would take care of all their financial needs. So you don't have to worry about a thing. But in return, whenever, whenever the patron needed support in some sort of a, a, a political or, or cultural or social issue, he expected them to vote with him, to, to do what he wanted, to provide support for, for whatever his interest was. Now, this is where Paul would have had an issue because Paul would be saying the Christians should avoid any situation where they might be tempted to act against their conscience, to do something that was, was inappropriate because they had this dependent relationship on a patron. He's saying, no, you should take care, take care of your own interests, and then you're not beholden to a patron who tells you what you need to do and what you need to think and how you need to act. Now, one more thing that Paul is most probably also doing here I think we can also say that Paul would, would, would believe that it was contrary to a Christian view of humanity for someone to be idle, someone to be able to work, have the opportunity to work, and choose not to work, that it actually was destructive to human dignity when you did that. And that's where this gets, this gets radical again, because what, what Paul is saying here is part of a larger Christian understanding of what, of what work is, of the nature of work. That was very different from the, the, the common understanding at the time. Right? You see this when, when Paul tells them that they should work with their hands. Work with your hands. He's telling them, you should, you should do manual labor. Now, Paul is not saying that manual labor is the only worthy work, the only work that's worthy of, of doing, but he is, in a very radical, very countercultural kind of way, dignifying manual work, saying that work with your hands is dignified. It's good. 
And this was, was, this was a very clear jab, a very, very clear attack at the, at the Greco-Roman culture of the time, which believed that there were, were hierarchies to the, to the dignity of work. Right? There were higher levels of work, work of the mind, of the intellect, philosophy, politics, art, those kinds of things. These were the realms of the, of the aristocracy where they ought to be concerning themselves. And then there was the physical work, the manual work. It needed to be done, but it was a much lower level. It was the work for the lower classes, the slaves. They were the ones that did the manual work. And that distinction between, between the higher work of the mind and the, and the lower work of the hands was really born out of what was the prevailing dominant cultural worldview of almost all cultures at the time. And that, that there was something, something beautiful, something pure about, about the mind and the spirit and something impure about the material world. And so it leads to a very logical conclusion. Work in a material way is somehow less dignified than work in a non-material way. But of course, when the Christian worldview is applied, you see that that can't possibly be the case. It doesn't let you drive a wedge between those two things like like that. Go back to the very creation of, of humanity in the beginning. When God created Adam, how did he do it? Out of the dust of the ground. He made, he made Adam. This is before the fall, before any kind of rebellion. He created Adam perfect out of the material world. It wasn't an accident. It, 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 it wasn't, it wasn't a, 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 mis, a mistake that could sort of happened because of circumstances. It was intentional, and it was good. Paul, already talking earlier in 1 Thessalonians about, he was a tent maker. He, he worked with his hands. Jesus almost certainly worked with his adopted father, uh, Joseph, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an apprentice working as a, as a carpenter. Right? Work with your hands is dignified work. That's what Paul's saying here. And this is really important to, to emphasize. Last month I was um, flying home from, uh, from Atlanta where the General Assembly for our denomination was, was meeting. I was flying home, and I was sitting in the emergency exit row uh, next to an airline pilot. I talk about, I, I don't need to look at the card now, do I? Right? He knew everything that I needed to know about how to get out if we needed to get out. Um, but it was really cool. He, was, he obviously wasn't flying the plane if he was sitting next to me, but he was flying from Atlanta to Philadelphia so that he could then, in turn, fly a plane from Philadelphia back to Atlanta that, that needed a pilot. So we started talking. And as we were talking, uh, it became clear that he, he attended uh, a church from, from time to time in the Atlanta area. And um, and, and he understood what it mean to be, meant to be a follower of Jesus. He understood the, the gospel and Jesus' message. But where most of our conversation was and where he really struggled, where most of his questions were, were in this er- was in this area of work. And he, was, he liked being an airline pilot. He was a good airline pilot. People had given him an opportunity to, to fly airplanes. And yet he had this sort of nagging question. It's like, you know, maybe, this, maybe there's something better that I should be doing. Maybe there's something you know, that's just higher, more, more Christian. And you, you, might ex- you might expect that the, the Christian minister sitting next to him, one who actually himself left the job in the corporate world to become a pastor, might say, yeah, you know what? You're right. You should go to seminary. You should pursue that. Right? And in many cases, that is the kind of thing that I would, I'm, there's people that I would encourage to, to do something like that. But that isn't what this guy really needed. Right? That wasn't his issue. What with, with this, this Delta airline pilot needed to hear was that he might, in fact, if he liked flying, <laughs> he was good at flying, 
and he had the opportunity to fly, that this might in fact actually be the most dignified, the most perfect work that he could possibly be doing in the kingdom of God. He needed to be reminded that, that all honest work in God's world is dignified work. Because his working with his hands to push buttons and move dials and pull levers and all that kind of stuff, his doing that, that work with his hands every day was enabling hundreds of people to travel hundreds of miles in hours. Right? Anxious patients who were traveling to another city to receive treatment at a hospital. Right? Military personnel who were traveling from one assignment to another assignment to protect our country. Grieving grandchildren who were traveling to the funeral of a, of a grandparent. Families that were traveling on vacation, enjoying time together. Pastors who were coming back from conferences where they learned more about how to help people tell people about Jesus. Here's the point. Maybe God is calling you into full-time Christian ministry, and I'd love to help you discern that, to equip you to that, equip you for that. But if he's not, if he's not asking you to do that, then he's not asking you to settle for some kind of lesser work. Don't ever think that whatever your version of flying the plane is, whatever your version of that is, that it is somehow less dignified. All honest work done in God's world is dignified work. It contributes to society. It frees others from, from it frees you from being a, a burden on others. In, in a very real sense, in its very best sense, it is the independence that Paul is talking about here. It is doing what you were meant to to do. And that, when, when that sinks in, you begin to better appreciate your place in, in God's economy, then you begin to understand the quiet life that Paul is talking about here in verse 11. Right? The quiet life. The quiet life is not sipping lemonade on the porch of a beach house or, or on the dock of a, of, a, of, a, of a river or something like that. And those things aren't wrong, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. The quiet life, this is a term that describes people who are content. They're content, productive contributors to their, their community. They're quiet because they don't cause trouble. Right? They're good neighbors. You want them on your block. See, and here's where you begin to see the connection between the love and the work, the, the, the dependence with one another that we have and the independence that Paul is telling us to, to seek as well. Here's where they begin to come together. We need dependence brotherly love, care, and, and mutual dependency upon each other. And we need independence, hard work that cares for our interests, but they work together. Here's what brings them together. Now, most simply, what brings them together is the word and. It's not in, it's not in, the, in the translation that you have. But a lot of times, the, the English translations, and it's helpful when they do this, because sometimes the sentences in, in Greek are really, really long, and so to help us kind of read it, they'll break things into, into sentences. But I want you to see that, that these two things are in the same passage, not just because, you know, when Kevin divided up the sermon series, he put two verses together that really shouldn't go together. No, these verses go together because in between verse 10 and verse 11, where the, the translation that, that we're using puts a period and actually creates a paragraph break, is the word and in Greek. The two thoughts are meant to go together. So most simply, they go together because the word and is there. But they go together because you actually really can't have one without the other. You, you can't. You, they, they exist together. You can't really do each either of them right unless the other one is present. This is what I mean. You can't have true work without, uh, true love, over here. True love without work. 
Right? You see, if you want community, and you want and you want to be a part of something greater, if you decide now, I really don't want to contribute to that. I just want everyone else to serve me. Then what you're looking for is not really community. What you're looking for is not mutual love and dependency. What you're looking for is a bunch of other people to serve your interests. You can't really have love and mutual dependency unless you're working, unless you're contributing to it. Now, on the other hand, you can't really have true work unless you have love. Now, you can work and you can provide for your financial needs. You can build up your bank account. You can make sure that you've mitigated against risk through proper insurance and and all of those kinds of things. But if that's where you end, if there's no greater purpose for what you're doing, well, then you really aren't working at at the level that God is asking you to to work. You're not really seeing the real dignity of what you're, you're doing. You're settling for a lower purpose, unless it's something higher, unless it's done to benefit the greater society, the culture in which you live. You can't have real, true work unless it's work that's done for the purpose of love. You see, they go together. True love works, and true work loves. That's what brings, that's what brings them together. And, and nowhere... Do you see this more clearly than in the life and the work of Jesus? Because no one more perfectly brings together dependence and and independence than than, than he did. Now, he he knows what community feels like. He knows what brotherly love is like. Jesus, the the second person of the Trinity, is is God himself. In his his nature as God, he he understands from all eternity what, what community and mutual dependence is like. Because from all eternity, Jesus the Son, with God the Father, and with the Holy Spirit, has been experiencing what love in community is is like, what dependence is like. And then when he takes on a human nature, when he takes on human form, he does the same thing. He's modeling what it's like to be the perfect human being. And so he he gathers a bunch of friends together, and and he lives life with them. He eats with them. He sleeps with them. He, in a sense, without ever abandoning his status as God, he, in a sense, he, he, he... he puts himself in, in a dependent kind of relationship with them. He sleeps while they're sailing the boat. Right? When, when, in his moment of darkest, darkest need, of greatest need in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he says, I want you to pray with me. He models what that, what that dependence, what that community is like. And, and that love, that love that he has, that, that, that understanding of community is what leads him to do the greatest work that the world has ever known. Right? This is what I mean. Children, when, you're, when, when your parents or when your teachers or, or something like that say things to you like, would you care about someone else besides yourself for just a minute? Would you look around and see that the world is not just about you? And, and when they say, on the other hand, would you please just mind your own business and forget about what other people are doing and concern yourself with you? They're, they're not trying to be contradictory. What they're doing is, because at that one particular moment when they're saying one thing or the other thing, it's because you're not, you're not actually doing the other thing right. <laughs> so, so when you say, I want you, I want you to concern yourself with other people, look around you, it's, because, it's not because work is wrong, taking care of your needs are wrong, but it's because you're doing it wrongly. Or when you're, when, you're, when you're working and when you're taking care of, of needs and, 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 and trying to help other people, but it's not working particularly well, it's not because caring about other people is wrong. It's because you're caring about other people wrongly. Now, parents, here is what, here's the convicting thing 
And this is what makes it so absolutely confusing sometimes for, for children. Parents, teachers, this is what makes it confusing for, for children. It's because, it's because we're just like them. <laughs> because we do the very same thing. We bounce between these two extremes, not because the other thing is wrong, but because we do the other thing wrongly. We do neither work nor love correctly. And in that failure to do that, when we do that, we are rebelling and we are sinning against God. Right? When we think that community and other people exist to serve us for, for our benefit solely and we have no contribution to make to it, then we are rebelling against the God who made community. And when we, and when we think that our work right, somehow creates this debt that God owes us because of the things that we've done, and we don't need other people. Right? That we're sinning against God because we're not understanding the nature of what, of what true love or true work is really all about. Right? And that's, what, that's where what Jesus did for us on the cross, the work that he did, becomes absolutely remarkable. You think about it, what that sin does, when we rebel against God in that way, what it does is it destroys both, both, both community, both dependence, and it destroys work and, 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 and independence. It destroys community when we sin against God because it says to God, I don't need you. And so we break communion with him. We sin against other people. We break community with other people. We can't have it. That's the consequence of doing it wrong. When we work in a selfish way that doesn't take the interests of other people into mind, in, in mind, when we sin against God, what we do is we actually create for ourselves a debt that we can never possibly repay, regardless of how much we work. And that's what Jesus, why what Jesus did in his work is so absolutely remarkable. You can always tell someone who works with their hands, can't you? My, my little league coach, when I was in uh, majors division, so 10, 11, and 12, like, his name was Mr. Condell, and he was a, he was a contractor. And, and you could tell from his hands. And they were, they were hard. He's the gentlest, kindest man. I, I, one of the gentlest, kindest men I've ever known. But, but his hands were working hands. Hey, calluses and scars. I mean, they, these, were, these were hands that worked. When Thomas the disciple needed proof that Jesus had done his work, what did he ask to see? Jesus' hands. I need to see his hands. Why? Because Jesus' hands were the proof that he had done his work. He had nails driven through those hands. Nails driven through those hands that demonstrated that he, on our behalf, lost the community with God, experienced the loss of community that we deserve in our place. Proof that his work was so perfect that it completely could pay for the debt that we owed, that we had accumulated, could never repay ourselves, but that, but that he had paid it in full. There's evidence that the work has been done. Everything that Paul is telling us to do here, to keep this balance right, is completely impossible without Jesus having done it first. True love works, and true work loves. And only in Jesus do we see them come together. They're not contradictory statements. If you see them as opposites, you'll find them baffling at best, frustrating at worst. But when you look at Jesus, you see the only one who was able to do both of them perfectly. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.
that you have done for us what we can't do for ourselves. And you call us to love other people in a sacrificial way, a way that works on their behalf. And you call us to to work hard in this world in a way that loves other people. Thank you for showing us that way, and Lord, thank you for dying for us on our behalf. God, I pray that everyone here would be changed as a result of that truth, that we would go forth into the world working and loving in the way that you have modeled, in the way that you have commanded, and in the way that you enable. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.